What a savior do we have when you see that what we've been given is not just uh, a textbook or some pieces of paper, but we see a risen savior, a shepherd who, as Huey pointed out to us this morning from 1 Timothy, has a heart and a desire and a love for sinners and for broken people. Not perfect people, not excellent people, not Fortune 500 people, but sinners and broken people and how he uses that brokenness to bring in his love and how he pursues us as a good shepherd so that we might be testimonies to his grace for the world to see how great a God, how great a Savior, how great his grace and how great his mercy and how great his love. And we, of all people, are privileged that we get to hear this, we get to see it, We get to see the presence of the Holy Spirit and the drama and the transformation that takes place in lives and even better still as his children, we have the privilege to partake in it of ourselves in Christ. So all praise be to God, our Savior and our Lord. Let's open in a word of prayer. Um, I'm going to ask at the very end of this sermon, if you would stick around for five or ten minutes afterwards, we are going to have a time as a congregation together where we're going to pray over the elder nominees and the elder vetting process and commit that to the Lord and ask for his oversight. Um, But for now, let's join with me in prayer, please, as we get ready to hear God's word. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. Uh, We thank you, O God, our Father, that you have a heart for lost souls, and it is your desire that all men would be saved. And the tangible proof and expression of that is that you sent your son to die in our behalf so that we might be saved. Because we in and of ourselves and because of our sin and because of who we are, are unable to save ourselves. And yet you, in compassion and grace and mercy and love, sent your son to live a perfect life that we could never live, to come and live among us, to express compassion, to pursue us, Lord and to draw us to yourselves and to forgive us and clean us and sanctify us and, and transform us and adopt us into your children, Lord, because we are precious in your sight, not because of who we are, but because of your great love and your amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for that. And so this day we come to you as your children and just ask as we come to your text, Lord, and your word, open our hearts that we might hear yet again the amazing love and amazing grace that you have given us in Christ. And we just ask that you'd open our eyes and open our hearts that we might behold your glory in its fullness in Christ, your, your glory which is full of grace and truth and which has been given, Lord, to us. We thank you for this, Lord. And uh, we just ask that it would continue to transform us and each one of us for Jason and his family as he's prayed for, for every man and their families here today and for every person here this day, Lord, uh, that we would ultimately, because of you, be pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray, amen. Well, the text um, that we have and God's word that is given to us for this morning is going to be from the Gospel of John. We're moving from Matthew to John. uh, John 21, uh, verses 1 to 25. And the title of our sermon today is God's Gift of New Life in Christ. Um, 
When we last left Peter, we've been walking through. Now, it's amazing. We've been here for seven weeks, longer than that, but seven weeks walking through the footsteps of Peter, through the, predominantly through the Gospel of Matthew. And we have been witnessing the glory of Christ as he has taken uh, this bold, brash, blue-collar fisherman who was quite confident in his own abilities to do everything and anything We've seen how Christ has taken him and walked with him and loved him and patiently bore with him and yet also allowed this man to be broken and crushed uh, and ultimately continued each step of the way to graciously and gently pour the gifts of God's love into this man and to transform him and to pour into him a new life that comes from above and not from below. And where we last left Peter when we were together was in Matthew 26. That Peter, when we left him, was weeping bitterly because he had denied his Savior three times. This after boasting in front of all the other disciples that though they all might betray Jesus, he would never betray Jesus. And though all might fall away, he would even be willing to die if that's what it took in order to be loyal and to continue on the path of the cross. But what we saw and what we witnessed and what the Lord ordained was that God came and he struck the shepherd, did he not? Uh, By his hand, he crushed and crucified his own son for your sins and mine. And when the Savior was removed, we saw that Peter, for all his bravado and for all his boasting, and for all his confidence in his wisdom and his ability as the leader of the disciples, uh, that the best he had to offer was woefully inadequate. And at the end of the day, as he stood in that courtyard, as Jesus was being beaten and spat upon and judged, Peter, the best of Peter, everything that he could muster, ultimately failed miserably. And he denied the Savior, not once, but three times in keeping with the word of the Lord. And as the cock crowed, and as the word of the Lord was brought to Peter, he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. And we left him as a broken man, completely aware of all his inadequacies and his failures and his inability, like each one of us, our inability to stand on the path of the cross and to walk on the path of the cross apart from Christ. We are not dissimilar from Peter. Broken people, fragile people, people made of dust, and ultimately unable in the best of us to really be pleasing to God or do what's right because we're sinners by nature. Not just in the things that we do, but in our heart, in our direction of our heart. But here's the good news of the gospel, and here's the good news of what we just heard uh, from Jason When we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God presents himself as a shepherd. He is the judge of sin, for sure. He is the sovereign creator who has created each one of us and has created this universe, and he is a righteous judge who holds accounts. But he is also a shepherd whose steadfast love endures forever. And when we go through the Old Testament, what we see repeatedly in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, And all the way through is that though God, because he is righteous and holy, needs to and must judge our sin, 
He is also a good shepherd who does not leave his children in failure and brokenness, but he seeks them out and he pursues them and he comes to them and he doesn't wait and sit and say, okay, well, you clean yourself up and you come to me and you get it together and five, five steps to get out of your brokenness and become a better person. No, he pursues us in his brokenness and he comes to us and he draws us to himself and he forgives us and he reconciles with us and he restores us and he feeds us and he nurtures us. And he, his love, his grace and mercy makes us what we need to be his new children with new life based on him and not on us. And that's what we're going to see today at the climax, hopefully, of, of this series of Peter's life, to see the culmination of new life being imparted to Peter after he has failed and after Jesus has risen from the dead and after the cross. So turn with me, if you would, to John 21, and we're going to read together Verses 1 through 25. John 21. After these things, which is the crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him and said, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. And they cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. This is the word of the Lord given to you so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might believe in him, as John says, and believing in him, that you might have the same life that John and the Apostle Peter had. We're in a little bit of a different place from Matthew, and yet I think what you will discover is that it's the same Peter and it's the same Jesus. The crucifixion has happened. The men have been in Jerusalem praying together. Jesus has already appeared to them at least two times. And here on a third occasion, Jesus appears to them. And the beauty of this, of what we're seeing, is we're seeing a resurrection appearance by Jesus. John opens this chapter in verse 1 and says that Jesus manifested himself to them. And the word that he uses manifested, phanerao, is the notion that it's really a divine revelation that is presented so that people could see or know in clear detail and that they could understand and appreciate the fullness of the truth. And so this is not like an Elvis sighting, okay? This is not like uh, a UFO sighting, Okay, or paranormal activities where someone sees a shadow and assumes that Bruce Lee never died but was actually out practicing kung fu somewhere out in the forest and has come back, and we see them in bits and pieces. But no, what we're seeing is that Jesus is presented in flesh and blood as a person in his newly resurrected body. And it is, as John points out, a testimony to the fact that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was and is indeed the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah who was predicted. And the verification of that is that God has raised him from the dead. Something amazing and something miraculous and something that for us almost seems like science fiction. And yet, when we go through this passage, what we will see is that it has a real touch, a real implication, a real connection, and a real purpose. 
And as we look at the bigger picture and we look at the heart of God and we look at God as a shepherd, one of the testimonies of the resurrection as Jesus comes to pursue his disciples is that not even our sin and not even death can stop God as the good shepherd coming to us and pursuing us in our brokenness and putting us back together again. Because if you remember, not just Peter, but every single one of the disciples abandoned Jesus when he was taken. Yes, of course, Peter most visibly. But each one, each one as soon as Jesus was taken, took off and ultimately betrayed their Savior. And we have to see, even though that they've seen Jesus and they've seen him risen from the dead, what seems to be clear from the text is that the disciples really didn't quite understand what was going on with the whole resurrection phenomena. They really were unsure of where they were to fit in and what they were to do. And yet if we remember Jesus' promise, Jesus' promise to them was that they would all be scattered when he was removed. But what? He wasn't going to leave them there. He said, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And so we find the disciples after the feast is over, what are they to do? Here they are in Jerusalem, hostile territory. And as the feast is over and everybody leaves, ultimately they follow Jesus' direction, though they don't understand completely, but they also go back to their homes and to familiar places. And as we come in this setting, these men have not yet been restored. They have seen Jesus. They understand that something is happening. But there is still this burden in their heart as you or I have all experienced when we've sinned, when we've grieved a family member, when we've made a mistake, when we've sinned in our heart, when we've grieved a loved one, we may understand that life goes on and Christ is still present, but the burden is still there because there has not yet been reconciliation and restoration. And there is, to a certain extent in our human nature, a propensity to withdraw, is there not? that when I failed somebody at church or when I've sinned in a big way, my predisposition is church is probably the last place I want to go to. Do I want to have to sit here and look at you all face to face knowing in the back of my mind that perhaps I have not treated my wife the way I should have or I've dropped the ball with my son? And so it's just easier for me to go to a place where nobody's going to see me. Let me hold up for a few days. Let me avoid that. And yet the beauty is that Christ comes to us and pursues us because he loves us. And so we see the disciples are in this situation. Verse 2, we're informed that they have essentially gone back to Galilee and they have resumed their old life. And the one who leads that charge is who? Peter, right? Peter, and the beauty here is we're in a different gospel, but we see the exact same Peter, that the men are there back where they began, if you recall, because where did we first encounter Christ? And where did the call for discipleship begin? Began on the beach by the side of the Sea of Galilee. And John's use of the term Sea of Tiberias is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias was a city that sat in the western shore and was a big and major city, so it was one that would be identified with that area. But the boys, if we can call them that, are back on home turf and home territory. And Simon Peter leads the charge and says, as Simon Peter will always do, and it's interesting because John, who wrote this gospel, and his brother, Peter, James, and John, were part of Jesus' inner circle. They were also 
scripture would seem to imply business partners, that they worked together. They probably knew each other from childhood onwards. These men were intimately aware, and Peter and John, through the text, as you see, were almost like best friends in many ways. And so we see this accurate, accurate picture, even though it's not Matthew writing, that's given by John of Peter, and Peter's the first one out of the gate. Why sit in your hands? Let's get out and let's go and let's do something and let's be busy. Let's go fishing. And all the disciples say, yes, this is a good idea. There are people who interpret it one way or the other. Were they doing something that they shouldn't have been doing? And people give, give Peter a lot of heat. And I don't think we can read that much in, into the text. Um, one of my sources of, of uh, perhaps understanding this is, is a very non-authoritarian source. It's uh, inside the NBA. Um, don't use that as a paradigm for scripture or Bible study, but one of my favorite episodes that I subject my wife to is during playoff season. Charles Barkley and Ernie Johnson and Kenny the Jet Smith have an episode during playoff season known as Gone Fishing. And what they show is that any team that gets eliminated from the NBA playoffs, they have this episode dedicated to them that these guys have gone fishing. And they show these photos, these ridiculous photos of the different stars on the team who are on a boat, and they've gone fishing. And then all the men, including Shaq, basically they get out their fishing rods and they play the fishing music and they basically show that these guys have gone fishing. And obviously it's a bit of a joke, but you know one of the things that they're pointing out is that there's this bittersweet moment for these NBA players because they get a chance for rest and relaxation and an opportunity to be with their families, but at the same time, they're no longer in contention for the prize. And they're no longer, by any stretch of the imagine, by playoff standards, NBA players anymore. What are they going to do? They're going to sit during the summer on a boat and fish and pine and wait and think about next season for a chance to quote-unquote redeem themselves the next year to see if they can get the prize. Now, I don't think we can read too much from that into the life of Peter, but I think what we can say about these men is they've gone back to what's familiar. They've gone back to what's comfortable. They've gone back to a place that's a framework of what they can live with, which is so often, I would say for myself, And I would say for many people, when we fail and when we blow it or when things don't work out well, career or wherever else we do, we tend to run to what's familiar and we tend to go back. And we want to go back to the way things were, maybe before everything got so ugly and messy. And I think that's true of us in all our lives. And yet what we discover in that verse is that at the end of the evening, these men were able to do what? Nothing. They weren't able to catch any fish. And that's an interesting point, because as you look at these men, these men were what? These men were fishermen. These men had grown up on the Sea of Galilee. They knew every nook and cranny and every place where fish were. This was their livelihood. It would be a little bit as if we said, Michael Jordan came over and he was not able to make a basket. There's something unusual and there's something strange going on here. There is something supernatural. And what these men are discovering is that they can't turn the clock back. They can't go back to the way things were before Jesus and before the cross. That their lives have been forever changed as much as they want to go back. And that without Christ, even the basic activities of daily life are futile and fruitless. 
And so these men spend the entire evening and they're unable to catch fish. And then what happens? Dawn breaks and we discover that Jesus is there on the shore. And what we see is that the shepherd has returned for his sheep. They do not recognize him and they are not aware that in fact he is the Lord and the Savior. They see a man who is there and he calls out to them and he provides them with guidance as his shepherd. It's the first thing he does. And how does he refer to them as he calls out to that boat as they're coming in from a fruitless evening fishing? He refers to them as children. He refers to them as children in verse 5. Jesus therefore said to them, children. It's an interesting, interesting word. The Greek word is paideia. And if we go back to our time together in Matthew, Matthew 18, when the disciples are fighting among themselves, saying, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom? What does Jesus say to them? Takes a little child and says to them, unless you become, what? Like a paideia, like a little child. All right? You cannot understand, enter, or function, or live in the kingdom. That it's only those who become like little children, who are born again and become like children and are dependent on their father and function in that way. And he's challenging their pride, right? And yet here after the cross, after their brokenness and betrayal, he doesn't say to them, you must become. What does he call them? He calls them children after the cross, after a forgiveness has already been given, which they're not aware of, but it's been settled on the cross for every sin of theirs, past, present, and future. And Jesus is guiding them and shepherding them as they are perhaps lost in their identity of what do we do now that Jesus is not here? And he's letting them know, you are my children. I will provide for you. I will shepherd you. I will take care of you. And just because you don't see me does not mean that I am not here. And he asks them a question in verse 5. What does he say? He says, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And the word for fish he's using is fish that's used for food. And Jesus is making the point to them that he knows their exact situation and circumstance. They might not have seen him during that evening, he might have been absent, but Jesus knows every detail that's gone on with those fishermen. And he knows that their attempts at gathering food for themselves has been completely fruitless and futile. And that these men are coming in hungry after an evening of work. And they have nothing to show for it and nothing to eat. And so Jesus is coming very, very gently and shepherding them and saying, what do you men really have to show for all your work on your own? He shepherds them and he guides them. And then, what does he do? He gives them guidance in the same way he gave Peter guidance when we were back in Matthew 4. He expresses his love to them through a command and a promise, and he brings his word to bear in their life. And he comes to them and he says, throw the net on the other side, on the right side, and then he gives them a promise. He says, you will find. And what's the outcome of that? Of course, we know and we see that the net is so filled with fish that these men 
who have been fishing all night and received nothing. They, they, in the text, it says that they're not even strong enough. Seven. Seven young, able-bodied men, Galilean fishermen, are unable to pull in this catch. It is so, so heavy, not just in number, but also in size of fish. And a light bulb goes off with John the Beloved because we've seen this happen before because when you go to Luke 5, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus puts out in a boat with Simon Peter. And after they've been out fishing all night, he tells them to cast the nets down. And once again, it's filled with fish, but that time it was to the point of breaking. And at the end of that episode, the disciples and Simon Peter, they bow down and they worship Jesus. That's an activity that is only reserved for God. If you were to bow down and worship anything else besides God in the Jewish culture, you would be stoned for idolatry. And yet they bow down and worship. Why did they do that? Because the demonstration of Jesus' supernatural power over all of creation, including the ocean, the waves, the fish, and the sea, is a demonstration that in their very presence is Yahweh Elohim, the God who has created all the universe. It's not just a provision of food. It's the fact that Jesus is in control and he is the owner and sovereign over every detail of the created order. And so John, who perhaps remembers this and sees the exact same phenomena happen again, but this time without the net breaking, a light bulb goes off. Whether he can recognize, visually recognize Jesus on the shore or not, he realizes that they are by this act in the very presence of God. And so he says to Peter, it is the Lord. And we see an insight here that John perhaps is the insightful one and Peter is the one, the man of action and decisive action. And so Peter, typically Peter does what? He basically, he's stripped down probably into his undergarments to fish, puts on his overgarments so that he's presentable to Jesus, wraps it around himself and doesn't even wait and dives right into the water and heads straight for Jesus. And we see the beauty of Jesus' shepherding because ultimately what Jesus' shepherding does in our lives is he comes to us, but he draws us to him. His words, his phrases, his anchoring us in our true identity that we are his children now because of the cross, because of the new life that he's given. And his shepherding and his provision ultimately do what? They draw us to him and bring us to him so that we can be with him and so that we can know him. And so, as John will say in John 17, that we can participate and be united with him by grace and have eternal life through the knowledge of him. And so the disciples come in and Peter comes in and the disciples come in afterwards dragging slowly this huge net filled with fish and Peter comes up, up to the shore and what do they discover? that Jesus has already prepared for them everything that they need. They've been up all night fishing, looking for food. That's the implication when Jesus says to them, you know, children, do you have any fish to eat? And the answer is they've gone out to look maybe for some food to provide for, for themselves now that they're back in the Galilean region and they're doing what they need to do. And yet the whole time, Jesus already has it planned out and the beauty of our Savior is that he does not just, quote-unquote, look after our spiritual needs. He is not a shepherd who comes to you and says, I'll pray for you. You're struggling with an illness. You have financial hardship. 
you have a family sorrow or a conflict, Jesus doesn't just sort of, I'll pray for you. Just let me know how it's going. Or good luck on that. No. What we see here is that Jesus cares for the whole man and in his shepherding, like the good shepherd that we see in Psalm 23, he feeds his sheep. And so the men come to shore after a whole evening of working, and what do they find? They find a hot breakfast. For fishermen who have been out in the cold and the water all night, what could be more welcome? Fish on a hot fire, a fire to warm yourself by, and even better still, hot cakes. You know, no syrup, but you know, there's hot bread that's there for them. And what they're shown is that the entire time Jesus has already provided for their every need. How often is that the challenge in our lives? That we worry and fret and we wonder, is the Savior present? Is he present here with my family? Is he present here with my job? For those who are struggling with looking for work, where is Jesus in the mix and where is the next paycheck going to come from? And yet we hear the stories over and over again, do we not? That when we go through those trials, the Lord brings us many times to the end of our faith where we wonder, how is this all going to work out? And we look back countless times, do we not, in our lives and see that the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has been a good shepherd and that he has provided for our every need. And he had it planned long ago, did he not? And he had everything set up and he had the fish and the hot cakes ready for us and it was all planned out and we did not need to worry because he is not only our Savior and our Lord, but he is our good shepherd who not only guides us in paths of righteousness, but he also feeds us and takes care of the whole person. As he says, not even a sparrow falls, but the Lord knows, does he not? And are you not? of more value than these. And so we see that our shepherd feeds the sheep and provides them with everything that's there and he serves them and he brings them in. And the beautiful thing too as you look at Jesus is there is unfinished business. Jesus is here for a purpose. That his resurrection is not just here to prove that he's the son of God. There he is. He's the son of God. God could have basically showed him in the clouds. But Jesus' resurrection is here for a purpose. It's happening in a specific time, it's happening in a specific place, and it's happening with specific people, and there is a specific need and purpose. And the specific need and purpose is the reconciliation and restoration of all these disciples who have failed. And it's for the restoration of those relationships. And as you see, Jesus is not doing this because he needs anything. He's doing it out of love because we're the ones who need that. We're the ones who need to know that the Lord has forgiven us, that the Lord is okay with us, that the Lord has covered our sin, and that he's willing to embrace us as his children and restore us and reconcile us out of love and grace. And Christ comes back specifically for that mission. And the beauty of Jesus' tact and his gentleness as a shepherd. You know, so often... I blow it in my household and with my family members because if something comes up and it needs to get handled, you know, as I've told you so often, I'm always the physician, right? You know, things are of a life and death uh, nature and they need to get handled right away. So if we sit down at dinner, it's like I could probably take two bites in my mouth before I have to lay down, you know, honey, we got to handle this. Finances are due or we've got to 
get the schedule arranged for next week because we've got to be in 20 different places at one time and it's just a burden that's there. And yet you see Jesus, the gentle shepherd, lovingly with these men. says, these men are tired. These men are hungry. Yes, they're a little bit dense. And yes, they don't have it together. And yes, they've kind of gone out and tried to do everything on their own and they don't get it that I love them and I'm going to take care of every aspect of their need. And yet we don't see Jesus criticizing, do we? He sits them down and he feeds them and he nurtures them and he warms them. And after he's taken care of them, then he raises the issue. And we see with Peter in verses 15 through 25 how Jesus the shepherd restores his sheep. And it's a good example and it holds us accountable as those of us who are called to shepherd sheep because it's markedly different, I can tell you, and very convicting for me in how many times I've shepherded sheep. As we look at that, Jesus begins simply by asking a question. What does he say to Peter in verse 15? He says, Peter, and he begins with this question, do you love me? It's an interesting way to start, is it not? Here is Jesus with Peter, full circle, back to where they first began in Matthew 4 on the side of the beach. And here's Peter again with his nets and his fish, exactly the place he was where we began in Matthew 4. But Jesus is different because he is now the resurrected Lord who has died and been raised from the dead by God. And Peter is different. But the heart of the issue as he raises this question, Jesus raises the issue of the way in which Peter stumbled and he fell. And we see that the beginning of the restoration process begins with Jesus pursuing his sheep. We see that his restoration begins with him calling his sheep to himself. We see his restoration beginning with his loving care for the sheep, feeding them and providing for them and bringing them shelter from the elements of the world. But then we see that Jesus also in his restoration does not ignore their sin. He is not harsh to bring judgment because the cross has happened and their sins have been atoned for. But as he comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? He brings to Peter the heart of the issue because is not the heart of the issue with our relationship with Christ always an issue of love? And is not the issue behind every sin that we commit before God and to our fellow man, is it not always an issue of love? Jesus always gets to the heart of the issue and is not just slapping people on the hand for the symptoms. And when he says to Peter, do you love me? He qualifies that statement and says, do you love me more than these? What's he saying there? A lot of people have a lot of different interpretations. More than these, is he referring to the fish? Is he referring, Peter, do you love me more than your trade and fishing? Or do you love me more than these, your brothers, these disciples? But if we go back to Peter's betrayal in Matthew 18, or excuse me, Matthew 26, we see that Peter's betrayal of Jesus or denial in his sin and stumbling begins with the denial of the word of God. And it's an expression that Peter gives when Jesus says that the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will be scattered. Peter comes out and says, though they all scatter or though they all stumble, referring to the other disciples. I'll never do that. And what Peter is saying in Matthew 26 is that these guys are all going to blow it, but I'm not. I.e., I love you 
more than these men. And in fact, if we look back at all the different gifts that we've talked about, that Peter is continually throughout his life doing two things. He's continually trying to prove to Jesus that he loves Jesus the most and more than anyone else. And he's continually falling flat in his face because he's unable to do so. And then the second thing that Peter is always doing is Peter is always trying to avoid the cross. Somehow saying that this is not necessary or this shouldn't be happening or this is wrong. Those are the two things. And so when Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He's taking him right back to the very beginning, to the very inception, to Peter's heart of what it was that started that whole trail. Peter's confidence in himself, his self-sufficiency, his braggadocia, his boasting, his belief that he in and of himself could prove to Jesus how much he loved him. And what do we see Peter's response this time? For the first time after the cross, we see a markedly different Peter. He says to Jesus, what does he say in that verse in 15? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. When you go to the original Greek text, Peter uses a different word for love. Jesus uses the word agapeo, agapeo, to love. And Peter consistently, for some reason, will not use the same term for love that Jesus uses. He uses the term phileo. It's interesting to note that, that Peter is unwilling to use the same language for love. The one who boasted that I love you more than you can even know or think suddenly is in a position where he's not going to even go there. And the second aspect that you look at this is Peter no longer boasts of himself or his ability, but he appeals to Jesus' knowledge as Lord and Savior. You know. And so we see a humble and broken man who no longer has any confidence in himself. And the only confidence he has is in the Savior's knowledge of who he is and what's in his heart. And we see this happen three times, that Jesus increases each time. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he drops it more than these. It's just, do you fundamentally love me? And then he asks him the third time, do you love me? And each time, Peter goes down that path of his three betrayals. And the second time, yes, Lord, you know. And then finally, what does Peter say at the end? He says, Lord, where does he rest? You know all things. And he's grieved by it. But what he does is he makes a statement of who Jesus is. And we see that Peter's relationship now with the Lord is not based on anything that he brings to the table not any good that he has in his life, that all his accomplishments throughout his life have really been nothing but what Paul says are scubalon, dung, failure, embarrassments, shame. And now his only confidence is in Christ and Christ's love for him and Christ's knowledge for him. And then Jesus fulfills the restoration and the commission as we see a transformed and repentant Peter after the cross, who is now forgiven because of the cross, Jesus says to him what? Care for my sheep, care for my lambs, shepherd my sheep. He gives him the commission, no longer of a fisherman, 
but to come back into service, to be restored, to be authoritatively restored, and to do the commands that Christ has given him the power to do, that Christ has restored him to do, that Christ has forgiven him to do, but ultimately that Christ will pour his spirit and allow him to do. What we see here with this commission is that Jesus has given Peter a new life. And Peter is like the servant who has been forgiven that huge amount of debt that he could never pay back. That Peter stands there with the grace of God, now a servant of Jesus, called to minister to his sheep and care for them, and to care for them in exactly the same way that Christ has cared for him. Forgiven, restored, with a complete new lease of life, and now Peter's service is embedded and given and commissioned by what? Grace and mercy. It's a completely new life, and it's a completely new career as opposed to Peter before, continually striving in his own strength and his own ability somehow to prove to Jesus that he's worthy of his love and his affection. This is the restoration and reconciliation of the cross, and this is the restoration that the good shepherd brings, and this is the restoration and reconciliation that Jesus brings to all his children. And so we look at brokenness and we look at failure and we look at these things as things we want to run from. And yet we see that Christ, the risen Lord, is not only able to restore us, he's able to transform those failures and that brokenness into something beautiful and great. Because as we look at Peter for the rest of his life, when we look at those three betrayals, I shared this with Dan before, who was present of the disciples when when Peter betrayed Jesus those three times? None, right? They were all gone. And yet, in all four Gospels, we find an account of Peter's betrayal. Who do you think was able to give the testimony of those betrayals? None other than Peter himself. Peter did not hide the fact that he failed miserably. He testified openly to the fact that he failed miserably. And he testified throughout the entire church, and all four gospel writers have documented that. For what purpose and for what end? As we men have been learning in Ephesians, it is to demonstrate that God's patience has been shown to each one of us, and that Peter and his place and his position as leader of the church is a testimony not to his own ability and his own strength and his own goodness, but it's entirely a testimony to a good shepherd who does not abandon us in our failures and who does not abandon us in our weakness and who does not abandon us in our crisis, but who pursues us, who loves us, who ministers to us, who restores us, who forgives us, and who reconciles us, and by his grace and his mercy enables us to obey his commands and to be his children and to feed his sheep, and to fulfill a testimony and a praise to his glory. That's who Jesus is, and that's what this testimony is for. And as we look down the path of Peter's career, when the Gospel of John was probably written, Peter probably had already died. And what we realize is, is that for three decades, Peter was able to serve faithfully, and ultimately he would die as his Savior died, and that's shown at the end. 
that Jesus comes to Peter after he's restored him. And then he confronts Peter with everything that Peter kicked against every step of the way and says to Peter, your destiny is going to be that when you were young, you did everything you wanted. You were the young and independent cowboy. But at the end, you're going to be taken, your arms outstretched to a place that you don't want to go and other people are going to dress you and they're going to do all these things. And the notion of the arms outstretched was a clear understanding of crucifixion to the original audience at that time and that day. And so we see that Jesus is saying to Peter, my child, you are not only restored, but you're united with me, not only in life, but death. And everything that you tried to avoid, now you're going to rejoice in. And our future and our destiny is one. The cross for Peter would be a sign of triumph now, not an obstacle. And what do we see? That Peter is given three decades of life to minister beneath the shadow of the cross. And at the end of that, Peter is faithful. And we see that Jesus, not only as the good shepherd, restores, but he preserves. And he is the one who ensures that we're able to finish well. Where does that leave each one of us? First of all, what I want you to take from this message this morning is how great a Savior we have. How gracious and kind is our Lord that he meets us in our failures and our brokenness. And though we despair and though we are discouraged and though we can give up and feel all is lost, our hope is not in ourselves or our ability. Our hope is in Christ because of his love and his grace and his tender mercies. And if we are willing to give him a chance and if we are willing to rest and abide with him, we will discover and see that he has already provided for our every need. Why? Because we are his children and he loves us and he died for us. And because God, as Huey pointed out this morning from 1 Timothy, has a heart for sinners and has a heart for broken and humble and contrite people and his desire is that we all might be saved. Where does that leave us? For sure, there are people who are here among us who come to church on a regular basis and have never known this Jesus. We may have known Jesus as a stained glass window. We might have known Jesus as a bedtime story. We might have known Jesus as a song. But have you truly known Jesus as the good shepherd? The one who, come, who had come to you to die for your sins and has loved you and has given everything for you and who beckons you to come and follow him. For others of us who know him, we have to say, what are the trials that we are facing this day? Health issues, work issues, finance issues, family, marital issues. And we have to say, have we gone fishing? Or are we willing to realize that Christ is with us? And are we willing to have our eyes open and realize that things that we don't recognize are evidence of his presence here in our lives? And that he longs to bring us to him and he is pursuing us. And he has drawn us to us to provide not only for our every need, but to restore us and to use those failures and brokenness and to transform them and to make us better shepherds who are dependent on his love and grace and not our own strength. And finally, how about as a church? Cornerstone has been through some rough times. And we stand here and we sit down and we say, who's going to stay? Who's going to go? Friends have left. Where are we at? It's been hard. Can we continue? And hard blows have been dealt. 
But the beauty of this text comes and says that in the middle of crisis and difficulty, our great shepherd has not abandoned us. But he loves us, he pursues us, he guides us, he reminds us that we are his children under his shepherding and care, and he provides for our every need. And then he calls us, though, with a commission and a command. What is that commission and command? That we would shepherd the sheep as he has shepherded us, that we would feed the sheep, that we would ultimately at the end, he says to Peter, the exact same thing that he said to Peter when he first met him on that beach in Galilee, when he had his nets, he says, follow me. And so that's really the challenge for CBC. Who will you follow? And of course, the question beneath that, who do you love? And the question that we each must answer this day to our Savior as a church together, as individuals and as shepherds, is this. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? That's a question that each one of us needs to answer. And I will go one step further. The life of this church and the future of this church, one week from now, one month from now, six months from now, ten years from now, will hinge on that question in each one of our lives. Let's close in prayer. Dear Jesus, you are a good and gracious shepherd, and you are kind and good. We just thank you for the love that you've shown us and that you've given. That it's not we who save ourselves, but it is you who has come to minister and shepherd us. For each person this day who is hurting and struggling and, and facing difficult challenges, may they know your presence as the good shepherd who provides for their every needs. For those who do not know you, may they know you this day as they have never known you before. And for we as a church together, Lord Jesus, may we celebrate and rejoice that ultimately our hope is that you are a good shepherd and that you finish the work that you've begun in our lives and that we one day will stand with Peter and say we are here not because of who we are but because who you are and because of your love for us. In your name we pray, amen.